0: When I first started in solar way back in the 70s, solar was only one step away from witchcraft or (laughs) alchemy, really, you know. And when I started looking at it in the university, people thought that was okay because it was research, but a lot of other people thought, you know, this guy's a bit crazy.
1: Hi, I'm Kaya Taylor, and this is Rewired, a show exploring the future of energy in Australia from ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. This season, we're exploring the transformation of our energy grid and highlighting the people that are making this transition possible. Today, we're chatting with one of the most experienced names in the solar industry. John Lassick is the founder of Regen, a company that's trialling a new type of solar thermal power.
0: Yes, so it's a hybrid system. So it actually uses PV, but a very special type of PV. And what it does is it uses mirrors to collect the solar energy in the first instance and actually concentrate that light to a receiver that sits on a small pole. And then there, we use a very efficient solar cell, a space-grade solar cell, which is about 40% efficient, which is double the efficiency of the normal solar cell. That is receiver can also produce heat as well. So we get electricity and heat. So the overall efficiency of the system is more than double what a normal PV system is. Right? So it produces twice as much electricity per unit of collector area, and it also produces heat as well.
1: Which is something that PV doesn't do. Correct. Right.
0: right so we get everything that PV gets, we get all of the heat And the efficiency is higher. And of course, then with the heat, you can do other things with that. So you can co-generate, you can make fresh water, you can store it, you can use it for industrial heat.
1: Solar thermal projects can be a little difficult to visualize. So let's break it down. When you visit a solar thermal plant, like what RayGen is building, you're likely to see an array of mirrors, usually arced in a semicircle shape. These mirrors are all facing a single point on a tower. That array generates intense heat, which is then captured by the tower to form energy. RayGen's solution not only captures that energy, but they've also figured out an innovative way to store this energy using a substance that we're all familiar with, water.
0: This particular storage concept grew out of the fact that we were successfully able to demonstrate the central receiver PV system and successfully capture the heat. So that's the first thing you need to do. Once you've done that, then the next stage is how do you take that heat and develop a system which can actually use that as a storage vehicle? So, yes, that's the order in which it, it happened. Uh, the intent was always there to have a method to do that. We just hadn't got up to that stage then. So, so that's what we're up to right now.
1: John has been in the solar industry for 30 years and the energy industry for even longer. Before founding RayGen, he ran another business in the solar space and also helped to refine much of the technology that is widely used in the industry. He is a real pioneer that has been changing the solar game for decades.
0: When I first started in solar way back in the 70s, solar was you know, only one step away from witchcraft or <laughs> alchemy, really. You know, and when I started looking at it in the university people thought that was okay because it was research, but a lot of other people thought, you know, this guy's a bit crazy here, you know, what is happening here? Um, And that all came about, I I guess it was almost destined. My uh, parents were scientists. My father was in remote area power Mm -hmm. way back at a time when there was no power grid, right? So way back before then. So. I actually learnt from him and uh, took the notion that you don't have to have a coal fired power grid to actually have power. So, if you put those things together and then look at a student in the 70s looking for something for his final project and presented with a lot of boring stuff about dipole moments of magnets, etc. My uncle, who was a nuclear physicist at Lucas Heights Mm -hmm. and also a pretty broad thinker, said, why don't you have a look at this solar Mm -hmm. stuff? And uh, so what I did in the Monash physics department back in about 75 was got some solar cells and did some initial tests with those and saw that by putting concentrated light onto those, I could actually increase Uh, the power by factors of hundreds of times. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting concept. And so it was just luck, I guess, and chance and and a whole lot of circumstances that came together that put me into that space. As it happened, uh, my first job was in a carpet room selling carpet, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I couldn't actually get a job in energy at that time. And the first, I did get a couple of small solar jobs, but the first real job I got was in uh, oil and gas and standard power. And so I learned a huge amount about how power works, how energy works. And then after that, I thought, well, look, it's time to actually use what I've learned there and the physics and the new ideas that were developing in solar and put that together and form a new company and try to make something work where you've got clean, dispatchable, low-cost power.
1: And that wasn't RayGen. There was another company first, <clears throat> is that correct?
0: That was another company yeah. before RayGen And what we did there is establish the basic principles that then led to something that could be a commercial embodiment of that. So what we've done at RayGene is actually produce a commercial embodiment of that, which had the concepts that were developed over many years, uh, now brought into a package that has got the right cost and the right scalability for utility scale power.
1: Since those early days, a lot has changed. The cost of photovoltaics has decreased and the public perception and understanding of solar has also evolved.
0: One of those things was that the cost and the degree of use in the early 90s Was very, very different to what it is now. So it used to cost 10 to 15, $20 a watt, whereas now uh, for a full system it's something like $1 a watt. And worldwide there might have been a few megawatts installed, whereas now there are. There are hundreds of gigawatts. So the the landscape is completely different. And um, the approach we were taking then with uh, a dish, we used to use a highly efficient uh, dish concentrator that could also capture uh, the electricity and the heat And it was the most efficient type of technology. And and in fact, we demonstrated the highest efficiency in the world with that type of technology. But it wasn't the lowest cost and it wasn't as scalable. So the difference between then and now is that with the central receiver system, where we have a big field of mirrors, we have a receiver on a small tower, we can have units that that are megawatt scale. Every single unit is megawatt scale. And that's where you need to be if you want to do utility scale projects. Mm
1: -hmm. And so cost being one part, but perception and I guess acceptance of these new technologies is is also an important element. You know, I know people use the term social license, so to speak. What do you think contributed to that acceptance from the 90s through to now? Do you think it really was just a numbers game or do you think people just became more familiar with it or... How do you think that changed?
0: Uh, let's face it. There's time for generational change yep. between the 90s and uh, now. We're talking about you know 30 or more years. Mm-hmm. So what has happened is the Chinese have really revolutionised the PV industry uh, and and just caused the cost of PV panels to plummet, which means that uh, the average man in the street can buy that. And once it becomes, you know, ubiquitous to that point, everybody just think, oh, yeah, solar, it works. There it is. It's on 20% of rooftops in this place. So they start to accept it. And even people um, who are sceptics, I think, these days, pretty much accept that solar works. And then the next question is, and and now they've all realised that and it's been highlighted uh, in the last couple of years, about grid stability. How stable is this stuff? Does it work? Does it produce power? Yes, it does. Absolutely, it produces gigawatts of power, even in this country. So a couple of years ago when we had those uh, major grid issues, the, the focus really shifted dispatchability. How can you have this solar energy Uh, be delivered when it's actually needed. And um, sometime before that, we'd actually started working on this large-scale storage concept. And it was inevitable. A lot of people already knew that, but it took, in Australia's case, a number of events to occur to make that abundantly clear. And, of course, now we've got mainstream companies like AGL and Origin all looking at various different types of storage media and uh, it's going to be the key to get us a greater penetration of renewables into the grid. You know, there's, we're probably limited to something like 10 or 15%. If you want to get further than that, you have to start having serious storage and you have to have a range of different storages, so short-term, long-term and grid stabilising technologies that can actually uh, keep the voltage, the frequency, etc, in good condition so that you can manage all those different sources of energy.
1: There are so many solar farms around the country now, and we've already seen many of these projects paired up with battery storage, which means the energy generated by the solar farms can be quickly dispatched when and as it's needed. The battery storage technology might not be the right answer for all scenarios, which is why RayGen are using the temperature difference between a cool and hot pond of water to generate energy 24 hours a day.
0: And we call it dispatchable solar, right? So it generates on-site solar electricity. It can either be dispatched directly or it can be stored and delivered later on. So it's like a a single package and it is really good for long-term so we have batteries that are pretty good for short term. Uh, they are quite expensive. So if you take a battery system and want to run that for 10 or 24 hours, the cost is going to be pretty prohibitive uh, at this stage. And there are some predictions that battery costs will will plummet like PV. Uh, my personal view is that that's not going to happen. There are different drivers for batteries than there were for PV. And a Silicon panels are mostly made out of sand, whereas uh, lithium-ion batteries have got lithium, cobalt, and various other uh, rare earths in those. So the same drivers are probably not going to work on that. Nevertheless, they will play an important part in the short-term storage and the grid stability part of the the equation. What we're on about is really from, say, six hours and longer – where we can provide long-term dispatchable power, as well as that we have a spinning machine as our generator. So that can provide frequency and control services to the grid to actually stabilise the grid even when other things are actually influencing the grid in a bad way. So it can can provide that additional uh, service which PV and inverters cannot do.
1: Arena is supporting Raygen with 15 million in funding to build a demonstration of Raygen's technology near Mildura. That project will provide 4 megawatts of solar generation and 50 megawatt hours of thermal storage. It's all about showing the commercial viability of the system, and if successful, will help see Raygen's technology expanded and exported to the world. But what are the benefits of Raygen's approach to solar thermal apart from cost?
0: I mean, cost is really one of the big, big players in this whole thing. And because we need long-term storage to fill out this whole equation, the cost per kilowatt hour has to be very low, right? Much, much lower than batteries are, right? And so you need something that can be long-term at low cost, The other benefits of the technology that we've developed include very low environmental impact, right? So say compared to pumped hydro, uh, where you've got to make giant dams sometimes in sensitive places because the geographical requirements require you to, to put them there. In this case, we could put a couple of ponds in the desert and the system will run just as happily there. Uh, on top of that the storage medium is water right so instead of having materials that uh, can have a pretty heavy carbon footprint to produce right and recycle at the end we've got a very very benign storage medium uh, which is itself renewable so the other thing is that there is a big local content in this so um our business model is to, is to make the core technology, which is the photovoltaic slash thermal receiver, which does the magic of, of you know, taking the intense solar radiation and producing the electricity and the heat, the control system that goes with that. But if this was built at other places around the world, most of the rest of the system can actually be built with local materials and local labour. So with that enabling technology and a very small component being exported, the balance of system being some 70 or 80% of the system can actually be built locally with local materials and local labour. And that makes it very accessible and very desirable by a lot of countries and a lot of places.
1: hmm Tell me a little bit more about the other countries. Where is solar thermal? Appreciating that your system's different to that, but where is solar thermal most popular in the world?
0: So solar thermal works best in very high sun areas, right? So uh, Morocco, southern US, Chile, parts of Africa, uh, and the Middle East, right? So high sun areas work extremely well for large-scale solar thermal Mm -hmm. Uh, those areas will work for us as well. We can actually go to slightly lower solar intensity uh, areas compared to those because we don't need quite as much concentration as they might might need. In solar thermal, you need very high temperatures, and that means that you need to have very big systems and you need a lot of clear sunlight to make that work. In our case, our system will work quite happily at low intensity as long as the, the sun is reasonably clear. So um, instead of needing to produce 550 degrees C, which is the normal sort of temperature you might want to see for a solar thermal system, our receiver runs at about 100 degrees C, right okay. So it doesn't need much intensity and the efficiency is still just as high at low sun as it is at high sun. So it's, so it's very transferable in that regard.
1: You've just closed a $42 million capital raise and that's been backed by some of the biggest names in energy, which congratulations, that's truly fantastic. Yeah. But it's been a long journey, as you as you kind of hinted to. So tell us a bit more about the early days of the company. I mean, I read somewhere that you started in a garage, is that correct?
0: Everybody starts in a garage. <laughs> in my case, it was the back shed, but... Um, sure. Yes. Well, the concepts that I've talked about uh, were for uh, In. I put the early pieces together in the back shed and um, got that working uh, as a very small system. Uh, and I funded that myself for the first two and a half years and I actually um, brought on board a couple of uh, experts, uh, a control systems expert and an optics expert to help me put that together. So we had the optics working, we had the photovoltaics working, we collected the heat and we had the control to make all that work. So that was the fundamental bit. There was done in the back shed and in a a little shop the size of a milk bar where we demonstrated those first things. And that was enough to get us to the point where we could approach people like ASI, which was the forerunner of ARENA, uh, where we actually got a grant, uh, I think of a million dollars, which was a lot of money then, uh, and also the Victorian government gave us a grant for about a million dollars to actually go the next step, where we actually uh, produced the full-scale essential components. So that was a full-scale solar PV module, a full-scale heliostat, and the fundamentals of a full-scale tracking system. Mm-hmm. And we did that at our current factory, in fact, in, um, in Blackburn, and at a small site in Bayswater where we demonstrated those pieces. And um, that was in 2013. And in 2014, we received, we raised some more private funding and we received another grant from ARENA to uh, develop and produce the first full scale, if you like, or on the way to full scale, uh, a quarter of a megawatt system, which had a field of about 60 heliostats, a uh, quarter of a megawatt receiver uh, on a small tower, uh, and the ability to operate as a as a little power station. So it was grid connected. It provided power for the neighbouring mushroom factory, uh, and any excess power was sent to the grid, uh, and that's still running to this day. After that, we raised a little more capital, and um, strangely enough, received. Another grant from ARENA and a bit more support from the Vic government to do the next iteration of that, which was about a half a megawatt, which really had all the improvements from that first pilot. And that system is still running today. And uh, that's provided the basis and the understanding and the track record, if you like, of performance Mm -hmm. necessary to go this next step into multi megawatts and to add the storage system on top of that
1: yeah it's a perfect segue to my last question which is if you had to pick one piece of advice there's an abundance now which is fantastic to see of clean tech startups and and research coming from universities into the commercial setting so if you had to pick one piece of advice for founders and for people in these companies what would it be
0: I think the one piece of advice is you need, well, there there are (laughs) are about five pieces of advice. (laughs) The main thing is you need to do your homework and make sure that the fundamentals of the idea you've got can really get there. There will be challenges along the way, but if the fundamentals aren't right, then you will never get there. So uh, do your homework, see what the rest of the field is up to and make sure the fundamentals are as right as you possibly can. And the other thing is sell, sell, sell.
1: Thanks to John Lassick from RayGen for joining us for this episode. Rewired is brought to you by ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, working to support Australia's energy transition. This episode was hosted by me, Kaya Taylor, with production and scripting from the team at Lawson Media. If you've enjoyed the conversation, consider leaving a review for Rewired in Apple Podcasts. It lets other people know that you've found value in the show. Or if you want to learn more about the Transformers working to change our energy grid and the projects that ARENA is funding, you can find out more on our website, arena.gov.au. I'll speak to you again soon.